We turn with me, please, to the passage that we read together, Romans chapter 1, and I'd like to draw your attention to uh, the first four verses, particularly verses 2 to 4. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. I suppose if you were to ask the question, what is the Bible about? I suppose we'd get a variety of answers. Some very simple answers might say, well, it's a a story about the Jews um, uh, and their uh, dealings, um, uh, uh, God's dealings with them. Some might uh, understand that uh, it is also a story about the Christian church. Um, uh, You get the kind of answer that you often get from Sabbath school children. Uh, It doesn't matter what question you ask, the answer will be God because they know that the likelihood is that that's probably right. Uh, All of these things are true in a measure. But Paul is saying that it's something much more profound. And in these opening words, I think you have, um, if I can paraphrase what Paul is saying, he says what we have in the Bible is God's men speaking God's words about God's promise. And uh, that's what I want us to think about. As we look at these verses, God's men speaking God's word uh, about God's promise. I want, uh, in uh, uh, by way of preamble, as it were, to note three things. Uh, that God's word, that is the scriptures, um, is what gives us God's promise. The promise and the scripture cannot be separated The scripture is about the promise of God. The promise of God is uh, revealed to us in scripture. Also, as we think about that, God's men speaking God's word, there is no distinction between the prophet's words and God's words. Uh, Those inspired of God speak the word of God. And so what Paul says, God says. Um, because uh, Paul is saying what God has inspired him to say. The Bible is a book, you might say a book of promises, but there is a sense in which the Bible is a book of a promise, one singular promise. And all the Bible promises revolve around that one singular providence and that, uh, that one singular promise. And that one singular promise is announced almost at the beginning of the Bible. It is brought to us in uh, the book of Genesis. And there um, uh, it is God's response to the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And it is that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. What a glorious evangelical gospel promise lies right at the opening of of the scriptures and that one singular promise of Christ coming into the world becomes as it were the magnet 
that draws all the other promises of God to him. And so Paul can say all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. And so as we go through the scriptures, you see this promise coming up again and again. The promise of a coming Messiah, the promise of a savior from sin. So we have promises to um, Abraham that uh, he would be the um, heir of the world. God would be his God, that he would be his child. You think of the promise given regarding Isaac. In Isaac shall uh, uh, his seed be called. You think of the promises uh, given to Jacob and how God uh, brought him out of that worldly uh, mindset into being a man who was submissive and devoted to God. And he himself looked forward to the time when Shiloh would come. He had that desire for the fulfillment of that Genesis promise. You see Moses, the prophet, you see it in David and in Solomon. When you think of the promise God made to David about building him a house, if you read carefully that promise of God to David about building him a house, you will see that it far surpasses anything that could be imagined with regards to Solomon. It is speaking of God building, uh, as it were, the kingdom of David through Christ, that Christ would be the ultimate offspring of David so that David is reported by the Savior himself as saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand. That was where his mind was focused. It wasn't on his own earthly kingdom. It wasn't even on the kingdom of Solomon. It was focused upon the kingdom of his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This promise sustained the faithful of God even through the captivity. Where do we have some of the most glorious references to the coming of the Savior? We find them in the book of Isaiah. We find uh, this, um, uh, these promises. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Uh, we are told about the name of this uh, son. Wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. You move on through Isaiah where he has been dealing um, uh, with Israel in captivity. He is writing for a people who would be captive, who would be enslaved, who would be discouraged. And he gives them that um, uh, God-given revelation that um, uh, of Isaiah 52 and 53. And there we have, it's almost like the light is shining. It's almost as though the New Testament was dawning that we read of the one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And so here is this promise, and it is sustaining the people of God throughout the Scriptures. You move into the New Testament, and what do we find right at the beginning? We find Anna, and we find Simeon. And we find Joseph and Mary and Elizabeth and Zachariah, 
all of these men and women waiting for the day spring from on high, waiting for the coming fulfillment. Uh, 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 old uh, Simeon could say, Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen. He lived to see the promise fulfilled. And so as we think about um, uh, God's word, um, uh, uh, giving God's promise through God's men, this is one great promise that is uh, sustaining the saints of God throughout the whole of Scripture. And that should be the promise that sustains us, dear friends. The promise that God's word that he gave regarding Jesus Christ the Savior will be, would be fulfilled. Now we know that he has come and we know that he has uh, triumphed. But we still stand in anticipation, waiting for the consummation of that promise. We are longing to see the day when ultimately, completely and finally, the seed of the woman bruises the head of the serpent. And so God's word, the scripture, is what gives God's promise. And as I've been saying, God's promise is the Son of God. That's what he has promised. He has not promised to the church a system of religion. He has not promised to the church a form of institution. He has promised his own dear Son, who would come and uh, save and redeem a people to himself. And so the promise is not an abstract thing. The promise is the person. Christ is the promise of God. And when God sends him, it is the fulfillment of that Genesis promise. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And he comes um, uh, uh, to fulfill uh, that promise and it is in him as I've said already that all the promises of God are yea and amen but here we are being reminded against the backdrop of a terrible um, uh, social situation Paul is writing in a day when there is godlessness rampant in the world where men and women are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, where they cannot bear to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. He's writing in a day much akin to our own. He's writing in a day when there are all sorts of perversities and sins abounding. And yet when he comes to deal with that society, what hope does he bring them? He brings them the hope of Jesus Christ, the promise of God. Because this promise of God, God's Son, is the good news. That is what the gospel is. The gospel is not a, 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 a list of rules, do's and don'ts. The gospel is not just 
uh, ecclesiastical traditions. The gospel is Jesus Christ come in the flesh for the saving of sinners. And so we are reminded of this good news. Jesus Christ is the good news himself. He is the focus of the Bible. We speak of the Bible being good news, but in actual fact, it is Christ who is the good news that the Bible reveals and records for us. Well, what is it about Jesus? Jesus, the promise. What is, uh, is it about him that is such good news? Why can we come with the same message today to a society sunk in the same kind of uh, sinful morass as the days of Paul and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Why is it that we can uh, do so? Why is it that Jesus is good news? And in verses 3 and 4, Paul summarizes what he's going to expand and open up in the rest of this book because he shows us um, uh, something of the, uh, if you will, the uh, lineage of Christ. And even in these uh, verses 2 to 4, we have a progression, just as there's a progression in the book itself. A progression. It begins in the pre-existent state of the Lord. He is um, uh, God's Son, Jesus Christ, reminding us of something we saw this morning about the identity of Jesus Christ, the beloved from all eternity. And so, right at the beginning, we are introduced to this promise, this hope, this um, uh, answer for the world's needs, and we are being reminded that it begins in the councils of eternity, in the very being of God himself. There is no good news for this world apart from Almighty God. There is no good news outside of the Trinity for this uh, poor world of ours. And so here is Paul, and he's speaking about uh, Christ as God's Son. And he speaks about his incarnation, his coming into the world. He is made of the seed of David according to the flesh. We read these words. They're so familiar to us. We're not startled by them. But dear friends, think about it. God, the second person of the Trinity, and he is there as the seed of David come into the world. What an answer. What a fulfillment of that Genesis promise. The seed of the woman is no abstract concept. It is God the Son taking a true body and a reasonable soul and coming into this world for the saving of sinners. And we are reminded also of his resurrection. We are not just here to commemorate a dead hero. Uh, many uh, would do that. Many religions uh, focus on dead heroes, dead saints. We are not here to deal with dead anything. We are here to deal with a risen and living Savior. And so we are reminded that his resurrection leads to his ascension. So what is the Bible about? Dear friends, it's about good news. 
God sending his son into the world to save in the most appalling circumstances. He didn't come into an Edenic world to save sinners. He didn't come into the best time when men and women were spiritually alive. He came when they were full of reprobate minds, when they were full of wickedness and godlessness. That is the same gospel that we need today. And that is the same gospel hope that we have for today. So I want us to think further about this question. What is it about Jesus that is good news? Well, the first thing we can say is it's good. He, um, uh, uh, he is the good news. This promise, this Christ is good news because he is the Son of God. Because God's uh, promise, you remember, was a response to the fall of Adam. Adam hiding in the bushes and Eve with him, uh, frightened of God, uh, reluctant to face him. And God comes seeking and uh, uh, that which is lost. And it is to them in that dire condition that he says the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Man found himself before God helpless and separated and under the wrath and curse of God uh, deservedly. And two things were needed if Adam was ever going to live. Adam needed that the law would be fully satisfied. And Adam needed that a perfect obedience would be rendered. And he could do neither. He could not, um, uh, he could not satisfy uh, the law that he had already broken. It was too late for that. And no amount of good behavior on the part of Adam would ever have uh, enabled him to render perfect obedience because you cannot render perfect obedience from a position of imperfection. And so there is David, uh, there is Adam rather, and he is in that hopeless condition and God comes and he says there is an answer. And he promises someone would come, the seed of the woman. And he promises that this son would do what he cannot do. Adam had been defeated by Satan. He was under Satan's foot. But here is God saying, one will come who will despoil Satan, who will bind the strong man who will empty his house of his people and who will take them to glory. And he comes. And we know the gospel story. We know what that coming involved. It is not new to us. He would come to pay the penalty for Adam, uh, Adam's transgression and the transgression of all Adams united to Christ. He came with a life of perfection to fulfill the law and make it honorable. And so he meets the two things that Adam couldn't meet. He pays the penalty. He renders perfect obedience. And it is to that promised one that we are called to look, 
For we cannot render Am a perfect obedience. We cannot pay the penalty of our sin, but there is one sent into the world, the Son of God made flesh, who has done it all. And so he is set before us. No angel could do it. There was no man fit to do it. And Jesus, because he is God and man, is able to do what fallen man himself could not do because he's divine he could take to himself a true body and a reasonable soul he could assume a human nature to himself without ceasing to be divine he could so take that to himself that he could in that human nature uh, for Adam's uh, for Um, his people render a perfect obedience to the law of God. And so he comes, and the law has no hold on him. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He is in a category all of his own. He is a true man, and yet he is a man without that that, um, fatal connection to Adam. He is the one who is not from Adam by ordinary generation. He is the one who is of Adam by special miraculous generation. And so it is, he comes and he fulfills all the debt to the law that his people had. And because of the infinite value of his people, his suffering Um, uh, would um, uh, have unlimited value. It was sufficient, one for the many. If it was a man for a man, there would be no hope. But it is the God-man for men who is the uh, substitute. And thus he could deal with their sin. Don't you rejoice in your heart? that there's such good news, that even in a black and terrible day like our own, this gospel is still the same because the promise of God is still the same. The gospel of God is still the same. There is a savior for sinners who is able to deal with that separation and curse and wrath of God, even the promise himself, Jesus Christ. It is good news that Christ died for sinners. It is good news that although none other could be found, he himself came and laid down his life, a ransom for many. And so this promise is good news. Christ is good news because he is God's son. But he is good news also because he was made of the seed of David. Notice what we're told, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Uh, You might say there's uh, three ideas encapsulated in this brief uh, uh, phrase. He was the promised Messiah. That is the first. He is the promise fulfilled of the seed of David. He was a royal person and he was identified with his people. What a blessing these things are, that Christ, as we've already said, 
was the one promised, the promised Messiah, the anointed of God. And he was of Davidic lineage. He was of the seed of David. He was indeed king of Israel. He was the one who was the king of the Jews. And he was the one who was destined ultimately to have the title king of kings and lord of lords blazoned upon him. And so he comes um, as a royal person. And yet he comes lowly and riding upon an ass. You see, here is that, um, uh, that thing that the Jews had such difficulty in grasping, that the Savior was not going to enter into uh, uh, Jerusalem triumphantly as though he would come conquering and to conquer, but he would come in that servanthood that would mark him out as um, a heading for the cross and giving himself a ransom for his people in order uh, that having humbled himself, he might be exalted by God to that great pinnacle of um, uh, uh, glory. And so he is um, a, a royal person, but he was also of the seed of David. David was a man. Jesus was a true man. Holy God, holy man. What a wonder that is, dear friends, that Jesus Christ is a real, true man, although the God-man. And that comes out as we, uh, that, that is um, apl applied, uh, particularly in the book of Hebrews, when uh, the writer is speaking about the priestly activity of the Savior. He is one before whom we can come boldly. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. We can come uh, confidently, knowing that he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We can come knowing he is able to succor us. And we have perhaps the greatest of all, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There we have a high priest. He is a true man, because the high priest had to be a man. The intercessor for the people of God had to be a man because man had uh, sinned against God. And here we have the promise fulfilled in the sending forth of God's Son as the God-man to redeem his people. What a blessing it is to have such a sympathetic high priest. But also we are reminded um, uh, of the fact that there was a time when Christ came into the world. Again, we're not dealing with abstract spiritual notions. We're dealing with historical fact. We're dealing with the reality of God in the fullness of time sending his Son into the world and the Son in the fullness of time coming into the world. And so we are reminded that the eternal God becomes man. But as we mentioned this morning, it's not by ceasing to be what he was, but by taking to himself, assuming to himself, a true body and a reasonable soul. 
What a wonderful thing this is. The creator becoming a creature and yet not ceasing to be the creator. The lawgiver becoming obedient to his own laws and yet still the judge of all flesh. His true kingly nature shrouded and hidden in his humility and yet all the while upon the throne of the universe although treading as it were through the valley of the shadow and so we are reminded of that drawing of the veil over the saviour for the sake of his people he is in the world and men and women by nature cannot see that he is anything other than a man to be despised no beauty that he should be desired again we are reminded of his becoming of the seed of david because he identifies with us as we saw this morning in our lostness he is supreme he is holy and yet he is able to draw near and identify us identify with us in our sin and in our lostness and that is how he identifies with us still even the best of christians here confess that they sin and fall short of the glory of god but that doesn't mean that christ ceases to identify with them they are still his own he still works in them he still is engaged in that process of sanctifying them preparing them making them fit um, uh, for presentation to the father and so we are reminded that jesus the promise is good news because he was made of the seed of david and then thirdly we notice that jesus is good news this promise is good news because he is alive you see the writer goes on to speak about the resurrection from the dead what a wonder it is uh, that this one is declared to be the son of god by the resurrection of the dead uh, from the dead christ had claimed through his ministry that he would be raised from the dead that he would come again after three days and here we see the vindication of that now it's interesting because there are times when uh, the scriptures speak of the father raising christ from the dead there are times when we are told that christ will do it himself no man taketh my life from me i have power to lay it down and i have power to take it again and we are told sometimes that the spirit raised him from the dead the fact is that god raised him from the dead father son and holy spirit he is raised from the dead and what does that say to us it says sin is dealt with it says death has no more hold upon him and by virtue of our being in him death has no more hold upon us and that is why we are able even when god's people depart this life to rejoice rejoice with sorrow but to rejoice because death for them is the gateway to glory 
we rejoice um, that he is raised from the dead because there is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the law but after the Spirit. Isn't that wonderful that there is no condemnation to God's people? Now that doesn't mean there's no cause for condemnation. There's plenty of cause for us to be condemned. Our own hearts would condemn us. Indeed, that's part of the problem very often with a lack of assurance. Our own hearts condemn us. But when our salvation is seen to be firmly rooted in the promise that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, there is simply no one who can condemn. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who will condemn? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God. Do you see that idea of resurrection and non-condemnation coming out? What a wonderful truth it is. And it hasn't changed. This is the same message that Paul was going to take to the, 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 uh, uh, to the Romans. And it's the same today. He is alive. Our relationship, or if you will, our religion, and I don't like necessarily using that word, is not about a, simply a set of beliefs. We have a set of beliefs, because the Bible gives us a set of beliefs. But it's not primarily about that. It's about a relationship. It's about fellowship with the living God through Jesus Christ. And that is the wonderful thing. We may be relatively ignorant of theology. We may be inconsistent in our Christian lives. Indeed, we are. But just because we are ignorant or inconsistent, even in a human relationship, doesn't mean that our loved ones don't love us. Doesn't mean that their tie is broken. It means that there are things that need to be sorted, but the reality is that the loved one still loves well, dear friends, if that is true at a merely human level, how much more true is it of Jesus Christ? That he loves his people despite their sin. He loves his people despite their inconsistencies. And he will do something about it to deal with those um, uh, inconsistencies and sins. But also, as we think of this living Savior, we are reminded that he is ever living for a particular purpose. And it is to make continual intercession for us. Christian friend, you are never alone. You are never without an intercessor. There is never a moment when the Savior is not concerned for your well-being and your good. And Christ in his resurrection ascends to the right hand of God for this purpose that as our great high priest he might make that continual intercession for us. 
but he has also the great promise of what is to come for us. The resurrection of Christ anticipates our resurrection in him. The trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Isn't that the great mystery that Paul speaks of in Roman uh, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15? He's speaking about the fact that we have that expectation that we who are corruptible will be made in corruption. That we who are mortal will become um, immortal in Christ. And, we, and yet, although that is an anticipation for the, the, the great and final resurrection, Paul also reminds us that the resurrection of Christ has a now impact upon us. In Ephesians chapter 2, he is speaking about dying with Christ. But he says, you have been raised together with Christ and you are seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. It's a now experience, but it's only a foretaste. It's only an earnest of the reality that is coming. And I have not seen, nor has it entered into the heart of man, what God has prepared for those that love him. And so we await. You see, just as the Old Testament saints from Adam onwards had that expectation, they stood on tiptoe waiting for the day when the Savior would come. His people today still stand on tiptoe because there are more promises yet to be fulfilled by Jesus, the promise himself. And so we look forward and we anticipate his physical resurrection from the grave is the evidence and the guarantee that we will be raised together with him at the last day. But we are raised together with him spiritually in principle. And the day is coming when we will be raised from the grave, in fact. And so Jesus, the promise is good news because he's God's son and because he was made of the seed of David, because he is alive, but also because he is Lord. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is raised in power. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's raised to a new phase of reigning. Now God uh, uh, the second person of the Godhead always reigns. That never changes or changed. But he is raised as the God-man and all power in heaven and earth is given unto him. And you ask, for what purpose? It's for the church. It's that he might may bring many sons and daughters to glory. And he is over all things. Working out that plan. You remember Revelation chapter 5. Who is it that opens the seals? It's the Lamb of God. History progresses bit by bit, moment after moment, because he is loosing the seals. Because he is bringing to pass 
what God has decreed will happen. And he is raised to a lordship that is characterized by holiness. He is raised by the Spirit of God. He, in his rising, demonstrates his own holiness, but he calls his people to be holy as I am holy. If we are raised together with Christ, let us live like raised men and women. If we have been saved through this one who is the promise, let us live in conformity to his will and purpose. He is the one who rules in holiness. He is the one who sends forth the Holy Spirit. He is the one who makes sinners holy. And so he rules all things. If we look around us and we take our sounding of the survivability of the church by the circumstances we face, just let's pack it in and go home because there's no hope for the church. But if we take our, um, uh, our, our foundation to be the one who is the promise, the seed of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent, then let us rejoice, dear friends. Nothing has changed. Christ will reign and does reign, and he will bring all powers under his feet, and he will be victorious. And he does this through the gospel. God's word. God's men speaking God's word about God's promises. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need something new. It's this same methodology. God's men speaking God's words about God's promises. Dear friends, let us take heart. And let us thank God that the promise has come, that the promise has been fulfilled, that the promise is being fulfilled, and the day will come when all the promises of God will have been completed. Let us pray. Father in heaven, bless us, we pray, and have mercy upon us. And grant to us grace that we might trust in thee. Thou hast given Christ and set, before him, uh, set him before us as the promise of God. And we pray that we would rest our hopes upon him and him alone. Go before us and part us with thy blessing as we sing our parting psalm for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, let us conclude singing from Psalm 31, Psalm 31 and at verse 21. Psalm 31 and verse 21. All praise and thanks be to the Lord, for he hath magnified his wondrous love to me within a city fortified. For from thine eyes cut off I am. I in my haste had said, my voice yet heardst thou, uh, when to thee my, with cries my moan I made. To the end of the psalm.
us stand for the benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.